poets and intellectuals of this time, the innovative minds, the intelligentsia, those that are breaking down the barriers and choosing a bohemian existence, escaping from dreary suburban ideals and materialistic death traps. Where are these engaging people? The risk takers, the revolutionaries, those living apart from this big unrest, those escaping the sterility of corporate junkies who get high on materialistic consumption. Welcome to the Bohemian Beat. We will journey beyond the horizon and find the artists living on the edge, going down into the murky waters of their very existence, where these brave souls have re-emerged with art that is challenging, original and brutal. Welcome to the Bohemian Beat. I'm Riddy, joining you for the next hour with poetry, music and so much more. Today, we will start with a track from an album called Free West Papua, Rise of the Morning Star. The people of West Papua have been suffering under Indonesian occupation since 1963. Over 500,000 civilians have been killed and thousands more have been raped, tortured and imprisoned. Foreign media and human rights groups are banned from operating in West Papua. West Papua was colonised by the Netherlands in 1898, along with the islands that now make up Indonesia. When the Republic of Indonesia became an independent nation-state in 1949, West Papua remained under Dutch control. The Dutch government began preparing West Papua for its own independence throughout the 1950s. At the end of 1961, West Papua held a congress at which its people declared independence and raised their new flag, the Morning Star. However, then US President John F. Kennedy bullied the Dutch to hand over their colony to Indonesia. I will quote from a 2006 article by independent journalist John Pilger. The silence of the international community is explained by the fabulous wealth of West Papua. In November 1967, soon after Suharto had consolidated his seizure of power, the Time Life Corporation sponsored an extraordinary conference in Geneva. The participants included the most powerful capitalists in the world, led by the banker David Rockefeller. Sitting opposite them were Suharto's men, known as the Berkeley Mafia as several had enjoyed US government scholarships to the University of California at Berkeley. Over three days, West Papua was carved up sector by sector. An American and European consortium was handed West Papua's nickel. American, Japanese and French companies got its forests. However, the prize, the world's largest gold reserve and third largest copper deposit, literally a mountain of copper and gold, went to the US mining giant Freeport McMoran. Today, despite Papua resistance, Jakarta remains firmly and brutally in control. <laughs> Thank you.
sky, it runs like hell The sky is black, they're burning out The mountains rise, the borderlines Snake rebel line, the valley's strong Red, red burn, red, red burn West popular, west popular Free west popular, west popular One people, one soul With their track Black Water from an album called Free West Papua, Rise of the Morning Star. Almost all West Papuans will be able to tell you stories of friends or family who have been murdered. Many towns and villages have witnessed wholesale massacres of their people. One such example was the Biak Massacre in 1998 where over 200 people including women and children, were rounded up by the Indonesian military, loaded into vessels, taken to sea and thrown overboard. The following poem called Short Poem About West Papua is by a West Papuan poet, Yeswaru, sourced from YouTube, so unfortunately the quality is not brilliant. This is a poetry about West Papua.
Also a West Papuan independence leader, international spokesperson for the United Liberation Movement for West Papua, and the founder of the Free West Papua campaign. His village was bombed by Indonesia when he was a child. Many of his family and villages were killed. Later, when he began to campaign peacefully for freedom, he was arrested, tortured, and with continued attempts on his life, forced to escape and eventually granted political asylum in the UK, where he was later reunited with his wife and child. The following piece is an excerpt from a speech Benny Wender gave at the Oslo Freedom Forum in 2012. Last 50 years, world ignored my people. Cry for freedom. 21st century, only West Papuan are fighting with colonialism. I know slavery, colonialism, as end of the colonialism, end of the slavery, but in West Papua, colonialism still in West Papua. West Papua is a home of bird of paradise. West Papua is a home of three kangaroos. West Papua is a home of 250 tribes. West Papua is home of the mountainous. West Papua is a home of the three forest mountains. But today, West Papua is the home of Indonesian military. West Papua today, home of Indonesian intelligence. West Papua today, home of Indonesian police. I grew up in the highlands, central highlands of West Papua, called Wamena. At the time I was a young boy, we were surrounded by Indonesian military. I want to tell you this story one time. I go into garden with my mom and my three auntie. We're walking. And in the morning, before we go to garden, my mom tell to my three auntie, put the muddy in your face. And I didn't know because we put the muddy because we're going to funeral or someone die. And while we're walking, this is my mom first, I'm in the middle, and my three auntie in the back. And they cover the face with the bag. And we were stopped. We, the military coming toward that six military and one Papua, he's an interpreter and the guide. We walk in and suddenly we stop. They stop my mom and then they hold a gun and they uh, take their, all the uh, bag in the head. And okay, they show to my three auntie. The first they look at the face, but then they look at the uh, leg. It's really uh, not old woman, it's a young girl. And they told my true auntie, three auntie to go wash their face and come back. At the time, my mom knows they will rape. And uh, after they came, and then my mom just suddenly trying to grab. And they, the military slapped my mom and beat him up. In front of my eye, a young boy, I couldn't do anything at the time. I cried with my mom. I, because at the time, I was a really young boy, I couldn't do anything. My three auntie rape. they crying, they crying. After that, what happened? We were surrounded. My village was bombed. 
1977. This is unknown. My leg was broken at the time. Then I, we hide in five years in the jungle. But because U.S. involved first place, business interest first, and human rights second, that what happened. You can see it. Our mountain, this is our secret mountain, been destroyed. What happened? After that, officially West Papua became part of Indonesia, then started killing, torture, imprisonment. You can see this, this is, it is recently what happened now in West Papua. Indonesia managed to kill my people, 500,000 men and children and women. 10,000 refugees live in Papua New Guinea. Some of them exile, even myself. I grew up in situations. One time I go back to my village. I saw, I passing my village with the military post, and then one of the elders, we were passing through with the, my el, uh, uncle, and because he's got a beer, and he have a drug dreadlock head, we were passing through and then military stopped. Do you have an ID card? Because we don't have any ID card in the village. So they beat my, my uncle in front of my eye. I couldn't do anything because I was a really young boy at the time. I grew up in this situation. And I always look at my people that they don't have any freedom to speak out. Any freedom, we don't have any freedom, even holding demonstration, even holding the morning star flag. Philip Karma is one of the men who has served 15 years in the prison, just holding morning star flag. If you are holding this morning stuff like in West Papua, 15 and 10 years, my people are never give up. They come out on the street. Since I escaped from Indonesia prison, I came to United Kingdom, claim political asylum. Because simply I just lead peacefully demonstration. Peacefully demonstration. I led my people, 2000, biggest Congress held in West Papua in our history. What happened? Because I'm a leader of my people, Indonesia put me in the prison, charged me 25 years. The end want to kill me inside the prison three times. Then I managed to escape. I came to the United Kingdom. But I left my people with a tear. I know well ignored my people. But today you hear my people cry for freedom. When I escape, British people allow me to stay in the UK and I form this group called Free West Papua Campaign. I'm campaigning up and down the country to build the support, grassroots. But I never silence because my people are prison so long. Never silence until my people are free. Then I will give up. My people, I want to see my people smile like other people enjoy the freedom. I want to my people, I want to see my people who are in exile, who are in a refugee, who are in hiding in displacement in their own homeland. Many of elders are hiding in the jungle. I want to see with the family reunion, they're having a tea and smile. That's what I want to see. I want to see one day my people will go hunting with no fear. I want to see my people go to the fishing without fear. I want to see my people go to anywhere in the world, any fear. But today, they don't have any freedom. They don't have any freedom. Please, you are, can change this world. Please help my people cry so long. I want to go, go back to where I come from, a free man.
Across the community radio network. We just heard Kauja Rhythm Clan with Free West Papua, and before that, Benny Wender speaking at the Oslo Freedom Forum in 2012. It is the survivors, the poets, storytellers, artists that risk everything to tell the world their stories. Stories that are suppressed by tyrannical regimes that dominate our existence. Stories that come from the human heart of suffering that bring ordinary, reasonable people to action and to stand in solidarity with the repressed. This is why poetry and art is greatly feared under tyrannies and violently suppressed. 
Constant propaganda is needed to keep normal people in ignorance, for if ordinary people knew what was happening, these regimes would be unable to hold on to their power. American poet Caroline Forche is best known for her stunning poems in The Country Between Us, published in 1981, from her work in El Salvador for Amnesty International. Forche is particularly interested in the effect of political trauma on the poet's use of language. Her anthology, Against Forgetting, 20th Century Poetry of Witness, published in 1993, collected the works of poets who had endured the extremity of warfare, military occupation, imprisonment, torture, forced exile, censorship and house arrest. The anthology includes the work of 145 poets translated from over 30 languages. This next piece is sourced from an interview with Fauché in the 90s with the American poet Ronald Flint. He begins by asking Fauché how she managed to get a poetry book of 800 pages published. Well, for some years I'd been gathering the material and I ran into an old friend who asked me what I was doing these days and I told him about the anthology that I'd been collecting and he said, well, that might be something for us. And I said, well, where do you work these days? And he said, W.W. Norton and Company. And of course, I was flabbergasted, actually, because it's a very well-known company and especially for publishing anthologies. When I went to New York to meet the editors there, I was asked to give a presentation, which I didn't know I was going to give and I was unprepared for, so I spent a half an hour extemporaneously talking about my project. And at the end of this talk, one of the editors asked me, well, what is a, a poet of witness? Uh, you're, you're talking about this poetry of witness and could you tell us what a poet of witness is and how is a poet of witness to be distinguished from, say, any other poet? Confessional poet. Exactly. And, uh, I wanted to restrict, I had restricted my gathering to poets who had endured conditions of extremity in the 20th century, and I had confined myself to poets who had been interned in the camps during the Holocaust, or who had suffered under, during warfare, or under military occupation, or had been forced into exile, or had been imprisoned, or tortured in prison. And in the case of South Africa, poets who had been under banning orders, or censorship, or house arrest. So, personal witness of these. Yes, poets who had actually been through these things themselves, and had somehow survived, and subsequently written poetry. I was interested in what these situations, what these experiences had done to the poet's imagination, to their language, and whether or not, regardless of the subject matter, whether one could feel this suffering and this extremity in the poems. And so when this gentleman at Norton asked me, well, what is a poet of witness and can you give me an example of a poet of witness, I chose to tell the story of Miklos Radnoti. Miklos Radnoti was the foremost Hungarian poet of his generation, and in 1942 he was arrested by the Germans and forced march to Yugoslavia, where he spent two years in a military labor camp. In 1944, the Germans realized that they were losing the war and for some reason decided to force march these laborers back into Hungary. They forced march some 3,000 laborers, and only 22 survived the march. Among them, the poet Miklos Radnoti. Um, when they got into Hungary, 
they tried to, the, the remaining soldiers who had accompanied the marchers, tried to put the marchers in a hospital uh, across the Hungarian line, and the hospital personnel were frightened, and they said, we have no room, we're full, go away, leave us alone. So the soldiers wanted to get rid of these prisoners and essentially get back to their units. So they took these prisoners to the forest where they were executed and buried in a mass grave. Two years after the war, Miklos Radnoti's widow, Fanny Radnoti, who is still alive to my knowledge, uh, went to the site of the mass grave with fellow villagers and they exhumed the grave site. They took out these 22 bodies and she went from corpse to corpse until she found the corpse that she identified as her husband's. And she went through his clothing and from the pocket of one of, of his pockets she pulled a small notebook and she peeled apart the pages and dried them in the sun. This notebook came to be called the Borscht Notebook, which contains the last poems that Miklos Radnoti wrote, and they were written while on this march. And I explained to the publishers at Norton that these were the poems I wanted to include among those in this anthology, and that that's how I was envisioning this idea of the poet of witness, and somehow I think they were moved by the story and asked me subsequently, well, how long would it take me to finish the project? So I was, and that's how it came to be accepted. And how long ago was that, well, this first contact? Well, you know, I told them because I really wanted them to publish. I said I could have the book ready in a year. Well, that was four years ago, and I'd already been working on it for something like nine years before I, I went to Norton. So it, I think it was fully 13 years in the process.
to The Bohemian Beat, brought to you via the Community Radio Network. And that was Tear Gas and Plate Glass with Le Hospital de Martyrs. And before that, Robert Flint talking with award-winning poet Caroline Forchet about her poetry anthology Against Forgetting, 20th Century Poetry of Witness, which was praised by Nelson Mandela as itself a blow against tyranny, against prejudice, against injustice. Let's continue with more of the interview with Carolyn Forchet, where she reads poems from the collection. I'd like to begin with a poem by George Trockel. George Trockel was a leading avant-garde poet uh, who enlisted as a dispensing chemist or a, a pharmacologist in the Austrian army. And after the defeat of the Austrian army at Grodek, George Trockel found himself, he wasn't a doctor, he was a, a dispensing chemist, but he found himself in charge of 90 wounded men. And these 90 wounded men um, were suffering horribly and he had no medications and he wasn't able to help them. Several of them apparently committed suicide in his presence and this caused George Trockel himself to begin to lose his mind. This is a poem called Downfall, written in that period, and it is an example of a poem that isn't directly about these experiences. But I, I began to feel as I read more and more of this work that if a poet was imprisoned or was, had a horrible experience of warfare and subsequently wrote poems, one could feel that, like say it wrote a poem about a snowfall, one could feel the imprisonment in the snowfall. So these aren't necessarily poems that directly treat their subjects, and this is an example with downfall. Above the white pond, wild birds have flown away. In the evening, an icy wind blows from our stars. Above our graves, night leans down with its shattered forehead. Under the oaks we rock in a silver skiff. The town's white walls keep ringing. Beneath the arches of thorns, oh my brother, we are the blind hands climbing toward midnight. It's marvelous. Mm. Who is the translator of that? Do you... uh, Daniel Simcoe, who published a volume called Autumn Sonata, which contains all of these translations. I first read uh, Trackle in a James Wright translation yes. years ago. Yes. Wonderful poet. This is a poem by Anna Akhmatova, the great Russian woman poet of the early part of this century. She actually lived until 1966, and she, I think she is the greatest of Russian poets and one of the greatest women poets of the world in the 20th century. But in, um, during the period after the revolution in the Soviet Union, she lived through a terrible period in, in Leningrad. The chief of police was a man named Yaskhov, and her her son was imprisoned at that time in Leningrad and she as as the other mothers with the other mothers would gather outside the prison and stand in line with baskets of bread and sausage and things that they had prepared hoping to smuggle these things through a guard into the prisoner um, no one ever knew whether these baskets reached the prisoners or not but at, and Anna Akhmatova was already a poet then and she was standing in line with the others and she writes a poem called Requiem for her son this is by the way the translation of Stanley Kunitz and Max Hayward and uh, this is, I will read just the beginning of this poem and its preface. Requiem. No foreign sky protected me. No stranger's wing shielded my face. I stand as witness to the common lot, survivor of that time, that place. Instead of a preface, 
In the terrible years of the Yeshov terror, I spent 17 months waiting in line outside the prison in Leningrad. One day, somebody in the crowd identified me. Standing behind me was a woman with lips blue from the cold who had, of course, never heard me called by name before. Now, she started out of the torpor common to us all and asked me in a whisper, everyone whispered there, can you describe this? And I said, I can. Then something like a smile passed fleetingly over what had once been her face. That's a wonderful example, a deliberate example in a way of poetry of witness, huh? She, this was the first poem that moved me as a young girl. And it was the first poem that told me what poetry of poetry's responsibility, in a sense, of what was really at stake here. And um, so I, I was always fond of this poem in this particular translation, and maybe it was one of the reasons this anthology happened. There's another by Antonio Machado, this Spanish poet, um, and he, of course, went through the Spanish Civil War and has a little poem called Coplas, which is very haunting. Coplas, in the high wilderness, I see some cold poplars and a white road. In that stony place, landscape of the moon, does no one remember it? The gusts of February rip through the lemon trees. I don't sleep, so I won't dream. Wonderful. It's a kind of fear in there that is really extraordinarily expressed. I, Bertolt Brecht is a central poet in this anthology, and when this book first came out, I was often asked, in May, I was asked, well, do you have any po poems that speak to the situation in Bosnia or in Sarajevo? And of course, I didn't. The last uh, event in my anthology is the uprising at, and the repression at Tiananmen Square in China. But I said, well, there is a Brecht poem that might help us all to to understand or, well, not understand, but at least live through and with these events in Bosnia. And it might inform us in some way. And there are two little excerpts. The first is from When Evil Doing Comes Like Falling Rain. The first time it was reported that our friends were being butchered, there was a cry of horror. Then a hundred were butchered. But when a thousand were butchered and there was no end to the butchery, a blanket of silence spread. When evil doing comes like falling rain, nobody calls out, stop. When crimes begin to pile up, they become invisible. When sufferings become unendurable, the cries are no longer heard. The cries too fall like rain in summer. That's, uh, that's very much to the point of what you say in the introduction about uh, Adorno's fear that that we seek a kind of oblivion and yes. uh, avoidance of such memory. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, Bertolt Brecht can also be a little funny. He uses uh, the children's primer as a as a model, as a form for his poem from a German war primer. And there's some very interesting little little passages in this primer. Among them. Um, he says, when the leaders speak of peace, the common folk know that war is coming. 
when the leaders curse war, the mobilization order is already written out. And then he, in a more serious note, and I think a very true one, he writes, the war which is coming is not the first one. There were other wars before it. When the last one came to an end, there were conquerors and conquered. Among the conquered people, the common people starved. Among the conquerors, the common people starved too. Huh. And then the, in the last little excerpt, he says, this is something that I think can, we can all feel too, and it is from the world's one hope. When a child is about to be run down by a car, one pulls it onto the pavement. Not the kindly man does that, to whom they put up monuments. Anyone pulls the child away from the car. But here, many have been run down, and many pass by and do nothing of the sort. Is that because it's so many who are suffering? Should one not help them all the more because they are many? One helps them less. Even the kindly walk past, and after that, are as kindly as ever they were before walking past. So that's, a, in a way, a product of, <clears throat> of forgetting. Yeah. Yes. Well, it, it also is a way of explaining to ourselves that these things can happen. I remember when I, was in, when I was a little girl, I used to think, if I had lived in Germany during the Second World War, I would have done something to stop the Holocaust. I would have worked against it. And then I lived in South Africa during the states of emergency. And I watched not a holocaust, but a horrible repression of a population while the world stood by. And I began in, in my own terror to realize that such things happen and that people during these events, as we are doing with Bosnia-Sarajevo, deliberate, well, what would be the best course of action? Historically, who knows how we will be judged or how, but uh, it made me think deeply about this. There's a, a poet in the anthology who was a prisoner of war of the Americans during the Second World War, Gunther Eich, and he wrote a poem that is uh, in the form of an inventory. I should say that many of these poems take interesting forms. Some of them borrow from religious forms, and they are hymns or chants or prayers, and then there are poems which take the form of anthems, national anthems, or or ironic anthems. And then in this poem, there's an inventory taken. And in many poems, inventories are taken. It's as if the poets are saying, what do we have left? Let's make a list. Let's discover what it is that we can still assemble. And Gunther Eich writes in inventory as a prisoner of war, this is my cap. This is my coat. Here's my shaving gear in a linen sack, a can of rations, my plate, my cup, I've scratched my name in the tin, scratched it with this valuable nail which I hide from avid eyes. In the food sack is a pair of wool socks and something else that I show to no one. It all serves as a pillow for my head at night. The cardboard here lies between me and the earth. The lead in my pencil I love most of all. In the daytime it writes down the verses I make at night. This is my notebook. This is my tarpaulin. This is my towel. This is my thread. Oh, The Chimneys by Nellie Socks. Um, and this is a poem by a woman survivor of the Holocaust. And it begins with the epigraph from Job. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Oh, The Chimneys on the ingeniously devised habitations of death.
when Israel's body drifted as smoke through the air, was welcomed by a star, a chimney sweep, a star that turned black, or was it a ray of sun? Oh, the chimneys, freedom way for Jeremiah and Job's dust. Who devised you and laid stone upon stone the road for refugees of smoke? Oh, the habitations of death invitingly appointed for the host who used to be a guest. Oh, you fingers laying the threshold like a knife between life and death. Oh, you chimneys, oh, you fingers, and Israel's body as smoke through the air. It's a translation by Michael Roloff. Wonderful and awful at the same time. Do you, could you read the little selection from Hannah Arendt? Of course, yes. We just have a few seconds, but maybe we'll. Hannah Arendt um, had a passage which explains, well, perhaps why one would want to do this and why it's not hopeless to bear witness and resistance doesn't fall into holes of oblivion. She says the holes of oblivion do not exist. Nothing human is that perfect, and there are simply too many people in the world to make oblivion possible. One man will always be left alive to tell the story. The lesson of such stories is simple and within everybody's grasp. Politically speaking, it is that, under conditions of terror, most people will comply, but some people will not. Humanly speaking, no more is required, and no more can be reasonably asked for this planet to remain a place fit for human habitation.
Yosef with Cantus Lamentus, and before that, from an interview with Carolyn Forche by Robert Flint, featuring work from her 1993 poetry anthology, Against Forgetting, 20th Century Poetry of Witness. And the end of the hour is upon us. I really hope you've enjoyed the show today. I will be back next week. Same beat time, same bohemian frequency. And for more information, check out the website thebohemianbeat.com We will end with another track from Free West Papua, Rise of the Morning Star by Blue King Brown called Never Fade Away. And for more information about what's happening in West Papua make sure you check out freewestpapua.org Thank you for joining me on The Bohemian Beat. I'm Riddy. Say, I got to tell you that's not the way